Welcome to episode seven of On the Balcony. My name is Michael Kohler, and I'm your host. Today, we'll close out a big section of Ron Heifetz's book, Leadership Without Easy Answers. And that is the section on leading with authority. Through the season, we looked at the distinction between leadership and authority quite a bit. Authority, providing direction, protection, order, coordination. Leadership, mobilizing people to confront difficult realities, address complex challenges, learning and unlearning. We looked at the resources roles of authority can bring for the practice of leadership and also what's constraining about them and how being in charge can really be a dance on a razor's edge. On the one side of the edge is the status quo. Challenge people too little and they are disappointed for the lack of progress and might eventually replace you. On the other side of that edge is too much change. Overwhelm, freak out, challenge people too much and they will resist and push you off the edge. And that gets us to today's chapter with the title, Falling Off the Edge. It's the chapter in which Heifetz looks at three American presidents from the 60s and 70s, Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Jimmy Carter, and examines how all of them fell off the edge and lay the foundation, if you want, for the mistrust in authority figures in America that we might still be suffering from these days. These are case studies of leadership failures at its best. And while these political examples may be far away in time, the lessons are still relevant. First and foremost, failing at leadership doesn't mean you are a failure. In the last chapter, we saw Lyndon B. Johnson exercise a lot of good leadership around the civil rights movement. This chapter, we see his horrible leadership failures around Vietnam. That's the nature of the work. You might succeed today, but fail miserably tomorrow. Our guest today will help us build the bridge of these lessons into today's world. Jevin Sue Lennox had chief people officer roles at multiple exciting Bay Area growth companies, places like Blue Bottle, Stitch Fix, and most recently, Incitro. He talks about bringing the framework to life in a fast-paced, hyper-growth environment and shares moments of where he fell off the edge with powerful lessons for both executives and people developers. As always, I invite you to read along with the book. This is chapter seven of Leadership Without Easy Answers with the title Falling Off the Edge. All right, let's dive right into my conversation with Jevin. Welcome, Jevin. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm so excited to talk with you today about chapter seven of Leadership Without Easy Answers with the title Falling Off the Edge. And we'll start our conversation by, you know, just curious, you know, as you reread the chapter, we both reread the chapter today, what core ideas stood out to you? The first thing that really struck me was the chapter taking us through you know, three very different leaders. Any 
American citizen or student of American history would sort of say LBJ, Nixon, and Carter. I don't know if that's the widest range of U.S. presidents you could pick, but it's really not a small range in terms of style, personality, approach to leadership. And so it's interesting to to think about a fundamental leadership failure on all three parts that had a similar thematic edge to it, even if the way each of them came to it might have been in a different way, right? Or or the way that it played to each of their fears or anxieties or or weaknesses. But actually, fundamentally underneath it was this um, idea of avoiding the adaptive work and leaning into the seduction of authority and leading into uh, the temptation of providing technical answers in the in the face of doing the work. Um, and so it was just interesting, I think, for me to to reflect on <laughs> all the ways that you can fail. Yeah. Uh, even if the face of it's the same kind of failure, there are actually many different ways and, and almost insidious the being thoughtful as a leader around what are my what are my tendencies? Wait, well, what are the ways that this devil can seduce me that is different than the way it would seduce Michael, different than the way it would seduce Jennifer? So that was one thing that really struck me um, in reading the chapter. I think another thing that really struck me was this idea of pacing versus avoidance and how to be honest with yourself about, are you really playing the long game? Are you really pacing the work? Are you really thinking about influence or so? And are you really just avoiding the hard things? Are you avoiding the conflict? And and I thought there's this beautiful litmus test that kind of emerged for me in reading about, you know, these different sort of leadership journeys that these presidents have had. And that if you really look at the challenge and you think about the adaptive work and the different parties at the table that might be doing that adaptive work with you. And if you cannot, during this moment of pacing and quietness and, you know, frankly, maybe even hiding the ball a little bit in terms of the work, if you can immediately point to some parties that you are actively working, then you are actually just avoiding. <laughs> and it's actually, when you sort of think about that as a really clear limit test, it's, it's actually quite clarifying because all of a sudden you sort of say, I mean, of course, immediately started thinking about adaptive work, but I'm doing in my organization that's hard and so on. And is there any movement? Is there any party that I am trying to push this forward with or orchestrating or thinking about the conflict and the learning and so on, right? Or am I, you know, kind of burying my head in the sand? <laughs> I love that. And and what's so interesting for me as I'm listening to these two insights that I think are the, you know, I resonated with these two ideas of that chapter too, is kind of the interplay between the system and the self, right? There is a certain pressure that the system is placing on people who are in charge and power, or to, you know, to fix and solve and make the pain go away or lower the heat or however we want to face it. But then there's also, you know, you call you use this word seduction, which I which I love, you know, the the this 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 tendency that that we are sometimes we believe our own press releases, right? We <laughs> we are prone to think about, oh, you know, I I am the one who can who can fix this. And and I think this is so beautifully described here in these in in these in these cases that you know, all of these presidents in a way like put their foot in that in that trap too of like that lone warrior, heroic kind of approach of leadership. I will be the one to solve it. Exactly. And even though these these um, examples are like decades old and the book was written 30 years ago, I think we we still see that not only in politics. I mean, we're, we're you know, as we're getting to know you, Jevin, we'll hopefully tap into your sort of very rich experience in the corporate world and the particular these 
you know, fantastic, exciting growth companies in the Bay Area. And I'm really so curious to to hear like how that resonates in your own experience in organizational life, not just in these political examples, which serve so well because we all know them. But of course, as we think about leadership from all of the places, like, you know, these are metaphors for the, the dynamics we, we see around. So we'll talk about that today. Before we do that, we want to get to know you a little bit more. And a practice we've had here on the podcast is, is um, inviting people to share their identities and their roles that they play. So both internal identities, social identities, but then roles uh, that, that they bring. So, Chevin, what would you like to put forward? Who are you? I think this is the hardest prep question that you actually provide. <laughs> I mean, the, the fundamental human question of who are you is not actually a straightforward one. I mean, I think on the face of it, I have a number of intersecting identities um, that are not always, they not, don't always obviously come together. So I am a Chinese American. I was born near the States. My parents were born and raised in Taiwan and my grandparents uh, were born and raised in mainland China. So that that kind of diaspora, which is a very particular flavor of Chinese American, which is kind of important to call out. I grew up on the East Coast uh, in New Jersey, uh, which there are definitely some East Coast elements to my personality and uh, approach to life, particularly fast walking. <laughs> I am a bit of an academic at heart. So I did two grad school degrees. I came perilously close to doing a PhD. And so even though I'm not uh, a true academic, I actually now my current company am surrounded by PhDs and former professors. Um, but I do feel like I have that heart for for learning, for curiosity, for reading others' perspectives. You know, even though I ultimately didn't choose to put my entire kind of profession and career into that, it's, it's definitely, I think, in my mindset. I grew up as a, a pretty nerdy little bookworm uh, who read a lot. Um, and so I think that's never totally kind of escaped me. I am a gay man. I am uh, married to a wonderful husband. I have two young children, ages four, age two, both sons. So we live here in San Francisco in our, our little queer refuge from the world uh, with a very, very large Airedale Terrier. So we, are, we are, are living our version of the American nuclear family, although admittedly a very uh, 2022 version of that relative to our country's history. <laughs> And then one fact that actually not everyone knows about me uh, in my professional life is that I was raised evangelical Christian. And it's actually kind of an important fact. And people are often very surprised by that because I'm very, um, you know, somewhere in the range of humanist to atheist and <laughs> pretty open about that. But, you know, I think having sort of spent time in a fairly fundamentalist community um, gave me a lot of understanding and some empathy, actually, for, you know, candidly, some of the challenges that our country has been going through in terms of wrestling with these different identities and perspectives and so on. And even though I deeply disagree with some of those perspectives and some of those perspectives are openly hostile to, you know, sort of the core of who I am and what my family is, I do feel like that immersion in that um, for a time in my life and having spent a, you know, a lot of energy and emotion in that, you know, is part of who I am. Um, and it's interesting because I only recently was able to say that out loud because I think for a long time, um, I really rejected that sort of pork part of my history. And uh, now I think I'm becoming more, you know, partly more at peace and then partly more actually embracing of the fact that there are parts of that experience um, that are part of who I am and, and are actually powerful parts of who I am, not parts that are just sort of fundamentally to be rejected. Mm. Thank you for sharing the, those, the, the complexity and the richness of these 
identities and how they intersect. And like the, it makes me think about the, um, the leadership work we, we like so much that includes, that's so hard, that includes the crossing of boundaries and how those internal boundaries may relate to the external boundaries and the capacity to cross boundaries actually is, is potentially something that is, can be learned or practiced early on in life when these different identities internally or in our nuclear family are, are clashing. Well, I think we're, we live in a world that, without getting into a big diatribe about big technology, but you know, we live in a world that is fundamentally, I think, oriented towards polarizing us and categorizing us. And in many ways, I think, unfortunately, the human mind contributes to that. Like we, we want to categorize things into binary sort of categories. It's, it's uh, how we process information. And I think, you know, the, the true richness of humanity is actually, to your point, the complexity and the collision of some of these things that are not, are not easily reducible. Let's just talk a minute about your professional, uh, identity. If, um, if that's okay, square blue bottle stitch fix now in Citro, McKinsey, several executive roles, a lot of people in culture work in these, in these different places. Like how would you, how would you describe the piece of work that you've been holding at these different places? Well, you know, the last decade of my career has been joining companies that are growing very, very quickly. And by definition, if you're growing very quickly, you have to evolve very quickly. And, you know, my snarky description of that is that I help companies that are hot messes become warm messes because you can't really <laughs> you can't be on this kind of growth trajectory and uh, not be messy. Actually, I think they actually have to accept some of it, but you can do it in a way that is more in an acceptable range. And yeah, exactly. It's it's an adaptive challenge. And I think that's why this content has you know resonated so much for me, even you know, 10, 15 years later after I first encountered it, because you know, there is this element in these kinds of organizations where there is so much emotion and there is so much of a sense of risk actually for people who are in these contexts where it's exciting, it's scary, it feels like everything is constantly changing. It feels like anytime someone feels comfortable or attached to something, you know, six months later, 12 months later, things are changing again and, and that feels at risk. And so I find a lot of resonance in the adaptive leadership framework because a number of things happen in these kinds of environments. So the first is um, the simultaneous putting on a pedestal of leaders and the desire to assassinate those leaders, <laughs> right? Of sort of like, give me all the answers, but also I don't think you have the right answers. And so I'm going to take you down pretty fast, right? And it's, uh, and I've just seen it over and over again. And again, one of the big lessons I've tried to apply from the adaptive leadership kind of work is this idea of separating the technical and the adaptive. And so uh, inevitably, yes, there are things about growing an organization rapidly and putting in more structure and thinking about how to make decisions differently and bringing in new leaders and so on, so on, so on, that are technical in nature. There are things that you can do that are, you know, somewhat playbooky and these are best practices and so on. And then there is inevitably an entire emotional side of bringing people through that process that is very specific to that culture, that is very specific to that group of people, that is very specific to each of those individuals, where there are, you know, certainly ways to think about it, right? So there are these frameworks that we can bring to it, but but are actually quite unique. And the way of thinking about how to hold people in that discomfort and to 
have them do the right work um, and to bring them along in that journey while not having them feel like you are abdicating your responsibility for direction, for support and so on is very, very tricky. You know, I'm now a decade into this type of work and I just received feedback actually from another executive uh, this very morning, this is very fresh, that, uh, you know, the way I answered a question at a recent all hands kind of displayed some frustration with, you know, the way the question was phrased and so on. And at first I had a very kind of human defensive response. And then I had a moment of, I'm the leader, I was supposed to be the big person and so on. And then because I knew I was coming into this podcast with you, I sort of was thinking of it through the framework of, and so on. And, and I realized, you know, I think actually the emotional piece underneath it for me was I was seduced. The person was implying in the question, you're supposed to have the answers and you're not telling us all the answers. And I felt attacked and scared because I don't have all the answers because by nature, this is an evolving organization and bringing people along and not, the work is not all mine. Actually, the work is shared. And naturally, I, I always wish the work is further along and so on, right? And so, so part of my response, even if I can justify it through other things, was actually that I was inhabiting this place of the leader who should have all the technical answers and responding in kind in a kind of, you know, don't question me. How, you know, how dare you, right? Uh, when I really unpacked that, I was kind of like, wow, it's all coming back to, coming back to this. And so in that moment, I can recognize the energy that they're bringing and then respond in that kind, right? Whereas I think I, I allowed myself to be at the center uh, and then, you know, that's not a good place to be. Beautiful. We are already in the midst of your experience and, and we'll, we'll dive into that more deeply. Really excited to hear uh, a few of these, of these really relevant applications um, because they, I think they make it really come to life. And I would love to anchor it a little bit around a piece of the, of the text. So I am curious, Jevin, you know, what piece of text did you bring to our conversation today? Yeah, so I brought a sentence that was relatively early in the chapter on page 155 uh, in a new chapter heading called The Sources of Autocratic Action. And the sentence is, as a political calculation, Johnson felt compelled to bear the weight alone and deceive the nation. And it really struck me because, you know, having taken this um, class in this content and um, having been on a teaching team and so on, I do think there is this element sometimes of, you know, with 2020 hindsight and sitting comfortably from your couch or from a from a classroom seat and so on, you know, you can critique these leaders and say how dumb they were and like, you know, what an idiot, like why would LBJ not, he clearly was doing it over here on the domestic side, why would he do it on the foreign side and what was Carter thinking and so on, right? And it's, it's really easy to do that. And it, I think that was a sentence that for me really captured with empathy, the challenges of being a leader and that, um, you know, even the most experienced and talented and so on, um, it is a really hard job and it's a very lonely job. And the temptations of doing these things are not, um, I don't think it's productive to think about them as an indictment of character or indictment of person, right? It's, um, they, are, they are the hazards of the job. And I think the act of leadership and particularly the act of very senior leadership, you know, maybe the president of a country would be one of the most dramatic examples. People talk about this frequently. It's very, very lonely. Right. It's very, very lonely because um, 
there are many aspects of what you can talk about and you, you can share your experience with and bring in that are challenging, that there are constraints in. And I thought the sentence brought to life that loneliness in, an, you know, I think an unexpected way. I was kind of reading through and I was all of a sudden, I, I you know, was almost, almost emotionally struck by that. And also I think illustrates, you know, where you can go wrong. Because in that loneliness and in that isolation, right, you're, you're with your own fears and you are tempted by what feels like the most expedient path or the most, the safest path or whatever it is, right? And, you know, what is the act of sharing that burden, you know, to use the language to share burden, sharing that weight with others, um, you know, in a way that makes you feel less alone and makes you feel connected in the work. One of the things that I um, experienced very early in my operating career, so my first uh, operating job after McKinsey was a company called Square, um, fairly well known now. Um, I joined them at 400 employees at a particularly rocky time in their company history. They were growing very fast. It was very hard. There were some big cultural challenges in the company when I, when I joined them, a lot of leadership turnover and so on. And, you know, and I got introduced at all hands as, uh, you know, this person who was coming with, you know, nine years experience at McKinsey and three Harvard degrees and kind of effectively positioned as a technical answer guy. <laughs> right. And I remember thinking during the, the little, you know, sort of overview of me and the all hands is like, this, this is actually not the way I'd like to be introduced because I think it positions me in a way that creates a dynamic and expectations that may ultimately not be healthy or productive, which um, somewhat came to pass. Because I, I think I then fed into it, right? Because then you sort of think, oh gosh, I'm, I'm supposed to have all the answers. And people are asking me questions about hard things and I'm supposed to have all the answers. And then I started, you know, sort of bearing the weight alone, right? It's like, oh, it's my, my role is to have all the answers and I need to just produce. And, you know, that is, as we all know from this, book, uh, a recipe for failure. Right. And so, um, you know, so that first year was very, very hard in many ways. Um, and it would, uh, it would have been hard no matter what. So I think one of the things this chapter talks about nicely is this is not a binary thing, right? It's not like, Oh, share the work and do adaptive work and it'll all be fine. It could still not be fine. You could still fail actually. Right. But the idea that you can increase the possibility of success, uh, just a very rational assessment, but also, I think kind of circling back to this idea of being alone, I think there is something about feeling like you're doing the work together and failing together is a very different feeling than failing alone. And so, you know, that's something I think about that first year. It was a really big lesson for me because, you know, there's a there's a moment where um, it was, you know, very rough first year. It was definitely not the best work of my career. <laughs> and uh, and I switched projects and so on. And and I kind of had this moment when I, and I think I really looked in the mirror and realized this is what I was doing to myself. Like I was kind of putting myself in this impossible position of supposed to being having all the answers that I never would have the answers. And instead sort of treating it as this, this exploration of there's work to be done. I rather than put myself on a pedestal, of course, I don't know the answers. All I can do is bring myself to the work with curiosity and to move the work along, right? So if you just sort of think of a lot of language and, and the ideas here, and that is actually my responsibility and that is what I am called to do. Um, but the answer will kind of emerge through that work because I can't possibly have the answer. And it was just a very different frame for me and a very empowering frame. I was very lucky actually because the project that I happened to be 
moved over to, or the role actually, was in an area that I actually knew nothing about. So the first role I took on at Square was literally called head of people development, right? So I'm coming from doing amazing work with Ron Heifetz's boss at, you know, the Kennedy School and so on. And so, you know, I'm supposed to know all the things about leadership, people development, and uh, I do not, still do not 10 years later. <laughs> but I, I, I fed into the seduction, right? Or I, I succumbed to the seduction. And, uh, and then I moved over to this role uh, in sales operations that I'd never done before. I'd never done it at McKinsey. I never learned anything about it uh, in graduate school. And it was one of the best things that ever could have happened to me for my career because I, I was forced in the role to be really humble and to know from the very, very outset of the role, I know nothing. And yet I actually had to lead. I was given a small team. And so how do I lead this team that actually knows more about the content than I do in a way that is that gets the work done so I don't get a pass? But I mean, you know, I would be laughed out of the building if I tried to pretend to them I know I had none of the technical answers. I was much more new to the work than they were. And it really taught me to lead through questions, right? Which is really bringing the work back to the people, um, not pushing it on them, right? but guiding them through the work. And, you know, it's some of the best work of my career. And, and it really, again, taught me, I think, what it is to lead in an adaptive way, what it is to, to really own where you do not have the answers to own your own um, limitations, honestly. But to do that in a way that is, you know, hopefully not disempowering or, you know, confidence sort of crushing, right? To do that in a way where people actually still value your counsel, um, feel like the work is better for it, but does not rely on this, you know, sort of traditional hierarchical model of authority and and the, the technical expertise that's embedded in that. Hey there, this is Andy, facilitator and executive coach at Konu. Thanks for tuning in to On the Balcony. Are you curious to learn more about how to exercise leadership or how to thrive in times of uncertainty and change? Over the next several months, Konu is hosting a series of virtual sessions designed to help you bring some of the ideas from this podcast into your work and your life. We'll explore key leadership distinctions that can help you mobilize people to make progress in times of change, regardless of your job title, your position, or your seniority. We'll also explore practices and mindset shifts that can help you stay anchored and grounded when the heat goes up and take care of yourself over the long haul so you don't burn out. You can learn more and sign up at konu.org events. And as a regular listener of this podcast, you can use the code BALCONY to waive your registration fee. That's konu.org events. And the registration code is BALCONY. Excited to see you there. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to sort of distill a lesson from here, because it sounds to me that you're moving in, I would say what, what Ron Heifetz describes are sort of systemic forces of groups, right? Groups look, look for expertise, they look for authorities in our language to help them deal with the tough problems they're facing, right? That's what we get hired for. That's where we put out a job description for. And yet... You know, there are these adaptive challenges out there that don't have clear answers, that don't have clear solutions that, you know, require learning and recording. Okay. So it feels like there isn't, it was an assumption coming in being hired of, I need to deliver or I, I need to fix this or I have the expertise or like something, some kind of assumption around that. I need to prove myself. I don't know what, what it is, but like some, a little bit more, maybe in our words, technical orientation. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think that's right. 
And then there was this mindset shift that you're describing. And I'm curious to hear, like, what is the different mindset? Like, how would you des describe that? Yeah, I, um, I'll connect the dots a little bit between that first, you know, stinted square and then some kind of more recent experiences. Because, um, you know, dwelling on some of the more spectacular failures is, you know, give some instructive lessons that probably the arc is more helpful. And so, uh, you know, that first year, I think in many ways, it's funny that I didn't recognize at the time, but I was hired to help do the adaptive work. Uh, when I spoke with the VP of people at the time about the team, the role, the role is a brand new role. So they had never had this role before. Um, it was a bit opportunistic. They got to know me. They said, this is, we're having this problem, right? We're 200 employees a year ago. We're now 400. We're going to be 809 months. Everything's breaking. We actually have a lot of technical experts on the people team, right? People who know how to do HR, know how to do, you know, recruiting and know how to do benefits, whatever it is. But we don't have people who are bringing the capacity and the focus on these harder things of just what does it mean to be a company that's growing this quickly? And what are the things that break? And how do we think about the company being more effective and our people, you know, not just sort of hanging on for dear life, but actually thriving through this context. And, you know, and as, you know, as we talked about, I think I, I mistook that and to, to be a little bit fair to me, um, the natural human condition is right. Others pushed on me of like, well, there got to be all these technical solutions. And, uh, and I, and I think I mistook that I had a lot of learning from it, but I think now, you know, I've now been, this is my fourth, uh, chief public officer role. And, um, and I'm now very, very conscious actually that there is in almost any project or seemingly small kind of task or initiative, there is usually a technical element and adaptive development and just being super clear on articulating them fast and then talking through them in a really open way. And I'll give a couple examples in a second. And then recognizing that there's a macro arc of adaptive work that also needs to be done. And again, figuring out how to enlist others in that work with you and, and be very explicit about it. I joined the company about 150 employees, the, or my current company in Citrip. We were, gosh, uh, I think we almost, almost double that from a year ago. We'll be over 200 employees by the end of this year and so on, right? So you can sort of see the, the emotional experience, the daily experience of employees through that arc, right? It's, it's changing pretty fast. And one of the natural things that happens in an organization as it grows is these things that you did when you're a small company don't work, right? I came in and within my first few weeks, we used to announce uh, employee anniversaries, work anniversaries at every single all hands. Right. So we'd say like, Michael, congratulations this week. You've been here your first year. These are the nice things about Michael. And that's lovely. Right. Uh, and it works great when you are not that many people. And all of a sudden you were 150. And so some of these actors were saying, you know, is this, does this really work anymore? And, and I, and I kind of looked at it fresh and said, look, the, I mean, the math is at 150 people and growing, uh, we're averaging an employee anniversary every other day. So by definition, at some point, it's not going to work, right? Because all of a sudden, the all hands are just going to be acknowledging anniversaries and not doing anything else. And so the natural response was, well, we just, we just stopped doing it. And so, you know, I've been around the block enough to sort of know, okay, I'm the new guy coming in and saying, this doesn't work anymore. We've outscaled it. We need to get rid of it. Was generally not going to get a great emotional reaction. And I sort of share this example, not because I'm a genius at this, but because I've made this mistake before. So I learned from it. And so I talked about, the technical challenge, if you will, right, of sort of 
we want to acknowledge people's contributions and experience and so on, um, but we can't do it in this context anymore in this way and so on, right? Uh, but really kind of highlighting the adaptive work of saying, that doesn't mean that that desire at an emotional level goes away, right? All of us want to feel affirmed in our work here. We are a culture that is warm, that is collegial, where we want to celebrate others for that moment, right? And so none of that goes away. So the work hasn't gone away, actually, right? The work for us to figure out well, how do we do this in this new context in a way that feels authentic and also feels, uh, frankly, efficient for um, our, our growing complexity is a thing. And so I sort of presented some early thoughts on how we could do that. Um, and, you know, I wasn't sort of hoisted on people's shoulders, right? But I do think the emotional reaction in the moment and feedback afterwards was very different than it could have been because to taking chapter seven as a lesson, right? It, we, we took the adaptive problem head on and we acknowledged it. And we acknowledged that we hadn't solved it, right? We acknowledged that this is hard and we need help. Here are some thoughts, but there's not an easy answer. That is, we just do it. And so just something as small as, you know, these kind of process tweaks or how you run a meeting or so on, right? Like, again, it just, um, you recognize that there's this adaptive emotional energy element to it that kind of comes along. So that's, you know, sort of one example of looking in the micro. And at the macro level, fundamentally, you know, part of it, I think, is having deep empathy for the people you're doing the work with, right? And so um, even when I'm really frustrated, one of the things that I constantly try to remind myself and remind others is... Part of what anchors me and gives me steadiness through the challenges of these types of organizations is that I've lived through them before. And so I have a sense of the emotional arc of this adaptive work. I have a sense of the ups and downs of it. And I have a sense of when I can see certain lows, why to believe that you will emerge to be in a better place while not dismissing that you are in a low place and the low place is probably not going to just be over tomorrow. Like it's actually going to be for some amount of time because the adaptive work requires it, right? The disequilibrium, you know, they're, they're correlated. You can't do great work without living in the disequilibrium and really pushing. And so part of that is, I, you know, I see is my responsibility to try to bring that ballast to others around me because many of them haven't lived through it, right? And so going back a decade, my first year at Square, I looked around and was constantly like, oh my God, what's happening? This is so hard. This is really scary. What have I done with my career? What am I doing here, right? And so, you know, part of, I think, adaptive leadership is just really living in this deep empathy. And um, even when you're super frustrated, to just remember that often part of what's challenging for these other parties is they, they don't have the same constellation of experiences that you do. They often don't have the same uh, longitudinal set of experiences that you do, right? And so the emotional response that they're bringing to the work, what, you know, even if it's frustrating, is actually pretty understandable. And so if you can anchor yourself in that, then I think you're better equipped, I think, both to meet them where they're at, but then also to show up as a better leader, because otherwise it, it can feel very personalized, right? Particularly when you're a leader and they're coming at you and so on, right? Then the natural response, unfortunately, at least for me, is to come back and recognizing that their fear, their anxiety, their frustration, you are, unfortunately, yes, you as a leader are being a vessel for it, because that's part of leadership but recognizing it's actually about all this other stuff. And so just hold strong and don't allow yourself to get sucked up in it and say, it's actually about this other stuff. And if I were them, I would be really scared too. I would be really upset too. So just hold the course. That's beautiful. Now, 
the, the, the question that's coming up for me is, as I'm imagining myself into these like high speed growth companies and Jevin is there kind of, you know, with the empathy and kind of, you know, that needs, needs time and like attention and maybe also a little bit slowing down. How is that negotiated when, you know, got to hire another 50 people and here's the next for, and like, and, and all of the, the hot mess you were talking about at the beginning is, is so present. The disequilibrium is through the, through the roof. How do you, how did you negotiate those? That's such a great question. I think, you know, and I think that connects more fundamentally to this question of pacing, right? And how do you, how do you determine for yourself what the right sort of pacing approach is? And then how can you get others to be comfortable with it? And so I don't know if I have a easy answer on it, but I would say, um, you know, of course, part of it ideally comes from experience and pattern recognition. I think part of it is if you can explain the challenges of the adaptive work in a way that really lands for people, I find often that they that, you know, it depends on the organization you're at in the context of the problem, right? But I think they naturally, uh, many, in many situations, they can then naturally understand, oh, of course, this is going to take some time. Like that is a hard problem. That is an easy problem. That isn't something that one executive is going to have the, the right answer for. And so I think you can, again, ironically, uh, counter to the maybe the human sort of instinct is the more you are vulnerable and actually are very open about the path. And again, you know, I think there's a way to do that that is shows confidence and a sense of direction versus just like, it's so hard. I don't know. What do you think? Is not necessarily generally a great strategy. But you can do that in a way that then, again, brings them into the work, brings them into the journey with you. And then I think naturally then sort of argues for a trajectory over time and a pace over time. The second thing I would say is, and I do, I think a lot about this when I'm taking leaders and, uh, and teams through the work that needs to be done is really then explaining if we're then meeting the people where they're at, then by nature, whether it is evolving understanding or evolving capabilities or so on, right? Um, you need to phase that work over time because, you know, I have two young children. Uh, there might be some out there, but uh, my sons definitely did not learn to run, <laughs> right? They pulled themselves up and they crawled and they walked and they, and now they, now they run a lot. And so there is this piece of, giving people the space and the grace to develop and work through and do the work with you, right? That a pace that requires some time and some patience. You know, so part of it, I think, is bringing that way of thinking to the work and, and hopefully getting leaders to really enlist in that with you and to sort of buy into that and be excited about it. Uh, or maybe not be excited about it, but to at least, you know, sort of understand it. And then I think, you know, the concreteness is important, of course, right? So it's uh, not just that it's abstract, but to then to say, and so given that, here's what we're going to focus on here and why. And it might be both for technical work and adaptive work, actually, it might be there's a concrete piece of it. So this, you know, one example would be the classic challenge at high growth organizations is you've got a lot of managers who are not experienced managers, right? They're first time managers. Or maybe even they're reasonably experienced managers, but they're the biggest job they've ever had. And so they're constantly at the edge of, you know, their own incompetence and experience, whatever, right? I'd say this is someone who's continually been in that situation. So that's not a judgment. That is the nature of these organizations, right? And so they're scared. They're trying. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the adaptive challenge, the challenge writ large, of course, is, well, how do you lift this whole set of leaders, this generation of leaders to where they need to be? 
you know, unfortunately, there is not a technical playbook to do that. Uh, if there is, someone has that, I would love to see it because uh, it would make my life a lot better, but I'm pretty convinced there is not. And so then you can say there might be some technical solutions that are part of this adaptive journey, right? But they are individual interventions and those interventions need to be deliberately sequenced and thoughtful around why this intervention now, why is this the most powerful intervention and how will this intervention then lead to this next intervention being more effective in time. And so I talk a lot with my teams about this chess game of thinking about adaptive change because it's, yeah, it's, you know, one of the things that I feel like I've come to appreciate more over time as well is sometimes I think you can think about adaptive versus technical work as also this complete separation, right? It's like, oh, it's like either either it's technical work or it's like this big problem. We need to do adaptive work, adaptive work, adaptive work. And and really, I think the reality of life is that they're intertwined. It's like, yeah. You know, and so, uh, again, it's, uh, you know, if you don't show up with any technical solutions, uh, you're not going to have the credibility. You're not actually going to get anything done. But it's the idea of using the technical interventions in a way that is really thoughtful about this arc of change and this arc of work uh, on the adaptive side that you need to achieve and really bringing others through that. And that's actually where I find that if you do it well, you can really enlist people in a way that feels really powerful because I think they feel the comfort and the confidence of your technical expertise in a way that is actually appropriate, right? So if you're a leader at a certain level, like you, you should have some technical expertise, right? Ideally. But uh, as we've you know sort of read in this chapter and in other parts of the book, it is the danger of when that is fully substituted that it, you know things really really go wrong. And so, so having people sort of understand this broad adaptive arc, be enlisted in the work with you, and to actually be enlisted in the strategy with you of hey, like we could here's a menu of technical solutions. These technical solutions are not the only answer, right? So again, we're going to anchor ourselves in the work that we have to do together, but they are part of the work that gets us there. Now, I would personally choose A and C. Here's why. <laughs> That's a really reasonable day for them to say like, well, no, it's B and D, but it's all in service of where, how are we going to do this together to bring the adaptive arc at a fast trajectory as possible? It's not a debate around simply like these three things and we're done, right? Jevin, I am as I'm sitting with with that that sentence that you brought. There is a there's a piece of me that is is stuck a little bit on one piece of the sentence. I'm going to read it one more time, and I'm I, I I'd love to have a a little conversation with you around that that piece. So here's here's the here's the quote one more time. As a political calculation, Johnson felt compelled to bear the weight alone and deceive the nation. And I think we've we've talked a lot about the sort of feeling of being compelled to bear <laughs> the weight of the world. But what I'm curious about the sentence, and I don't know if that was part of your initial response to it or like as you chose it, but I'm 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 so struck by this deceive the nation. Yeah. Uh of the kind of, you know, you're 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 bearing the world and then and then because it's so big, you're like you're moving towards deception. And I'm I'm just What is coming up for you as you engage with these three words, deceive the nation? Oh, I love that you called me out on that because I, I had hoped that we would just cover the sentence fragment. <laughs> <laughs> But you're right. I mean, deceive the nation is, is, is language that really strikes you at the heart, I think, particularly without getting political, the, the, uh, the history of the United States in the last few years. <laughs> mm. But um, we're really honestly over decades, as many students of American history would probably then quickly correct me. 
I mean, I think for me, it's it's interesting because as, as as someone, you know, chief people officer, HR and historical parlance, I used to joke uh, or do sometimes joke that um, there's a character in Mean Girls. This is now a throwback reference um, for many people. One of the key characters is uh, is the queen bee of the high school named Regina George. And another character kind of refers to her very starkly as, you know, her hair is full of secrets. <laughs> And the chief people officer job is kind of like that. Like you, you hold a lot of secrets like all the time. And like most of the time, the secrets are not super pleasant. And it's honestly one of the hardest things to the job, I think, uh, in that you have to hold hard information and hard truths often for good chunks of time, well before many others can know it. And sometimes you are put in situations where you are right on the edge, right? But like, unfortunately, by the nature of the work and the nature of the secret and so on, right? Like I do have a responsibility to kind of keep it under wraps, right? And so, and so again, sort of then connecting to the broader content of the chapter, what I thought was, you know, so brilliantly laid out later in the chapter is this idea that, you know, Johnson said, well, this would come at great sacrifice to the domestic agenda, right? I think many of us would say like, wow, like the things that he achieved in on that side of the house was, was amazing for the country, right? And so you could sort of, you know, easily fall into the moral calculus that he was making. And I think there's a sentence later in the chapter, I'm trying to remember that sort of talked about, actually, uh, I think really actually acknowledged that even actually if you're doing the adaptive work and you're pacing the work, there may be a moment where you're actually kind of obfuscating and deceiving and so on. But right, we come back to the litmus test that we talked about earlier in this conversation of saying, can you really, if you're honest with yourself, can you really point to, well, even if you're hiding the ball broadly, are you pushing yourself in a place of discomfort to do the adaptive work and move it along? Even if it's a small quarter, even if it's a small group and so on, right? Like, and that is where Johnson did not, right? And that's, you know, as the chapter sort of lays out, Johnson, I think really sort of hoped that somehow the, all of this challenge in Vietnam would sort of resolve itself quickly. And so he wouldn't be forced to do the real adaptive work, right? And that was kind of a fatal mistake. But, I, you know, to see the nation, it's sort of, I mean, it's hard because I think you sort of read it and you sort of think emotionally, morally, well, how could anyone ever justify doing that and so on? And, and I think actually later in the chapter, some of the moral complexities of that and actually, you know, sometimes the adaptive work actually may require some element of that. But again, what is the path sort of out? And um, I was actually, you know, thinking, you know, all of these um things sort of prompt up many hard conversations I've had over the years. And I was thinking about a conversation once where I was coaching a leader through a challenging situation where we were, we held a secret and a full truth and a direction that we were going to go in that was not sort of ready for prime time. And, you know, we were navigating how to go through conversations um, in the time before that, right? And and one of the things that we talked about was this idea where even if we could not be fully truthful, even if we could not be fully transparent, could we see the positive arc towards transparency? <laughs> so it's kind of like every week, every conversation, are we sort of slowly moving towards that in a way that we felt, you know, uh, that we could sort of hold our hells reasonably high? What the chapter brought up for me was even the complexity of that. And are there ways to be if you feel forced into that corner, are there ways to sort of do the work honorably despite it? Yeah, I really appreciate the the transparency around the intransparency, right? And and one of the moves that I sometimes see, and even that is hard, is is can we be even if we can't be transparent about everything? Can we 
can we be transparent about a process or around a timeline? Or like, we may not be able to say that now, but in three months, there will be more clarity. Like, but it's hard and it, it, it's, it stresses one's uh, authority because it is, it is ultimately related to the trust that, that people have in you. So I would like to close us out with one final reading of the text. And I want to invite you, Jevin, to read the, the quote one more time. And then I'll, I'll ask you one final question as a, as a wrap up. As a political calculation, Johnson felt compelled to bear the weight alone and deceive the nation. Looking forward, Jevin, into your future, what are you being called to do? I think one of the things that I find the most joy and meaning in is actually helping other leaders not feel alone in the work. Uh, I've never really crystallized it that way, actually. This conversation is very illuminating for me, but you know, I, uh, by the nature of what I do, whether it's through my operational work or through advisory consulting work, I, I often am working with CEOs and founders, and um, which is you know a really lonely job, and and being able to help them not feel alone in the work, um, partly through my own counsel, but partly actually to think about bringing others into the work in a productive way, while not shying away from their responsibilities. I think is something um, when I'm able to crack the code with somebody, it's just like very powerful and affirming, and so. I think there's lots of ways to do that work, um, but ultimately that is, that is the calling. Jevin, thank you so much for all of these rich insights, uh, both from your own personal experience and what you're seeing around yourself. I'm so glad um, that this chapter about these like, you know, old failing presidents <laughs> has been so generative in, uh, in, you know, in making sense of our current world and, and current organizations. Really, really grateful. Thanks a lot. Yeah, that was, that was great. It was great to reconnect with the content. I have to admit when I first started reading, I was like, oh gosh, okay. I haven't thought about LBJ and Vietnam in a long time. And then as you can tell, there's, um, there's a lot of emotional resonance that actually comes in when you really, really, really engage. Terrific. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Michael. We'll be back in two weeks with chapter eight of Ron Heifetz's book, Leadership Without Easy Answers, with the title, Creative Deviance at the Frontline. This is the first chapter where we'll explore how leadership looks like from the margins with little authority and the resources for leading beyond your authorization. We'll be joined by Julia Fabris McBride, who's the uh, interim CEO and president of the Kansas Leadership Center. She'll share with us wonderful examples for leading without authority in communities in Kansas and beyond. If you like the show, press the subscribe button and leave a review. These reviews really help others to connect to this important work. On the Balcony is brought to you by Kono, growing and provoking leadership and hosted by me, Michael Calder. We're produced by Apology. Editing, Riley Byrne, Daniel Link. Cover art by Kenneth Amoyo and Rosie Greenberg. Our music is called Change in Blue by Hannah Gill and The Hours. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back for episode eight on The Balcony. <laughs>